We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello everyone, I am V and welcome to a special We Should Talk About This episode that is only featuring me, one of our solo episodes that will be coming in the near future. Today, I want to get you all together so I can tell you a story about a killer, but not only any ordinary old killer. I want to talk to you today about the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper III. Better known as Big Ed, Ed Kemp, better known as Big Ed, Ed Kemper was born December 18, 1948 in Burbank, California. Ed was the middle child and only son of Clarnell and Edmund Kemper II. They had a very dysfunctional marriage. His father left the family when he was nine years old, leaving him only with his mother was not a pleasant time. She insulted him, mainly saying that no woman would ever love him. His mother was an alcoholic who abused him and forced him to sleep in the basement, justified by her fear that Ed may sexually assault his sisters. Even as a young, young child, she would not coddle or baby him for the possibility of, quote-unquote, turning him gay. Through the years, Ed would decapitate his sister's dolls, which later turned into harming small animals, which even further progressed into torturing and killing cats. At the age of 14, Ed ran away from his mother and found his way to his father in Van Nile, California, and stayed with his dad until he was removed from the house due to the stressful nature Ed rubbed upon his father's new wife. Ed's father sent him to his grandparents, and here he suffered abuse from his grandmother. During his time with his grandparents, his grandfather gave him a 22 caliber rifle to kill small rabbits and gophers. At 15 years old, Ed and his grandmother had an argument. Ed storms off, gets his grandfather's handgun, returns to the kitchen, and Ed gets behind his grandmother and shoots her three times in the head. A short time later, Ed's grandfather returns. Ed has the idea to kill his grandfather also, just to avoid him from having to live through the shock and suffering of discovering his dead wife. Ed intercepts his grandfather outside and shoots him in the head. Ed called his mother, who told him to call the police or she would. When the police asked, why did you kill your grandparents, Ed responded, to see what it felt like. This event put Ed into the hands of the California Youth Authority. Meaning various psychiatrists, Ed received tests and even IQ tests with surprising results. Ed scored a 136, the first time that Ed was revered as a genius. This gave Ed a huge ego boost. Ed was diagnosed as paranoid and psychotic and sent to a maximum security institute for mentally ill convicts. Ed began telling the doctors and psychiatrists what they wanted to hear to give them the notion that they are making progress on him. All the while, he was still actually thinking about ways to torture and harm others. Edward was released after five years. Also, his juvenile record was expunged. The murders of his grandparents were wiped away from his record. 
Now 21, Ed moved back in with his mother, despite the authorities advising him not to, due to the past history of abuse and resentment. From time to time, he would live in different parts of the area before ultimately returning to his mother when he ran out of money. Ed went to a community college for a little while and got a job with the Department of Transportation. Ed had aspirations to become a police officer or state trooper. Though, being six foot nine, Ed exceeded the maximum height requirement and was turned away. Ed hung out with the Santa Cruz police officers, becoming a regular at the bar the officers frequent. Ed bought a motorcycle just so he could still have a police officer look. Unfortunately, Ed was in an accident and was injured from falling off the motorcycle. A $15,000 settlement was given to Ed as the other driver was at fault and Ed purchased a vehicle resembling an unmarked police car. Being out of work, Ed was in a position where he had a car but nowhere to go. Driving through the area, Ed noticed a large number of female hitchhikers. Ed began picking up the women to provide rides to, though he was actually honing his skills to become more approachable to seem trustworthy. One day, Ed picks up two Fresno college students, Anita Luchessa and Marianne Pish. These were Ed's first targets. Ed stabbed Anita to death and attempted to strangle Marianne only to fail, so he decapitated her instead and hid the head in a wooded area which was discovered later. Anita's remains, however, were never found. The next victim was Aiko Ku, a 15-year-old girl. He strangled and raped her. He put her body in the trunk and went to his favorite pub for a few drinks. Ed returned to his apartment and had sexual intercourse with the corpse before dismembering and disposing of her remains. Ku's mother reported her disappearance and put up hundreds of flyers asking for information, but to no avail. Cindy Shaw was Ed's next victim a few months later. Living with his mother again, Ed was driving around the Cabrillo College campus where he picked up 18-year-old Cynthia Ann Shell. He drove to a secluded wooded area and fatally shot her. In his mother's house, he kept Cindy's corpse in the closet. He waited for his mother to leave for work before he had intercourse with the corpse and then proceeded to dismember and decapitate her in his mother's bathtub. He would use her head to conduct sexual acts before eventually burying her head in his mother's garden facing her window because his mother, quote-unquote, always wanted people to look up to her. After a heated argument with his mother on February 5th, 1973, Ed left his house and searched for possible victims. With heightened suspicion of a serial killer prying on hitchhikers in Santa Cruz area, students were advised only to accept rides from cars with university stickers on them. Ed had such a sticker as his mother worked at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He encountered 23-year-old Rosalind Heather Thrope and 20-year-old Alice Helen, quote-unquote, Allison, which he went by, Lou, on the UCSC campus. According to Ed, 
Rosalind entered the car first, who reassured Allison to also enter. He then fairly shot Rosalind and Allison with his 22 cal pistol and wrapped their bodies in blankets. Ed again brought the victims back to his mother's house. This time, he beheaded them in his car and carried the headless corpses inside his mother's house to have sexual intercourse with them. He then dismembered the bodies, removed the bullets to prevent identification, and the next morning, he discarded the remains. Some remains were found at Eden Canyon a week later, and more were found near Highway 1 in March. So this is kind of what it all has led up to. Ed has spent his life feeling hated, non-desired, and unfortunately he took action in the wrong manner by kidnapping, assaulting, and murdering these innocent college students. But now it was about time for him to get revenge on his mother and his mind. So on April 20th, 1973, after coming home from a party, 52-year-old Carnell Elizabeth Strangberg awakened her son with her arrival. While sitting in her bed reading a book, she noticed Ed entering her room and said to him, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Ed replied, No, good night. He then waited for her to fall asleep returned to bludgeon her with a claw hammer and slit her throat with a knife. He soon after decapitated her head and engaged in sexual acts with her severed head and then used it as a dartboard. Later, Ed stated that he put her head on a shelf and screamed at it for an hour and threw darts at it and ultimately smashed her face in. He also cut her tongue and throat out and put them in the garbage disposal. However, the garbage disposal could not break up the tough vocal cords and ejected the tissue back in the sink. That seemed appropriate, Ed later said. As much as she bitched and screamed and yelled at me all, all those years. Ed then hid his mother's corpse in a closet and, wait, and went to drink at a nearby bar. Upon his return, he invited his mom's best friend, 59-year-old Sarah Taylor Sally Hallett, over to the house to have dinner and watch a movie. When Sally arrived, Ed strangled her to death to create a cover story that his mother and Sally had gone away together on vacation. He soon after put her corpse in the closet obscured any outward signs of disturbance and left a note to police that said approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday, no need for her to suffer any more at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep, the way I wanted it to be. Not sloppy and incomplete, gents. Just a lack of time. I got things to do. Afterwards, Ed fled the scene. He drove nonstop to Pueblo, Colorado, taking caffeine pills to stay awake for the over 1,000-mile journey. He had three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his car and believed he was the target of an active manhunt. After not hearing any news on the radio about the murders of his mother and Sally when he arrived in Pueblo, 
He found a phone booth and called police. He confessed to the murders of his mother and Sally, but the police did not take this call seriously and told him to call back at a later time. Several hours later, Ed called again, asking to speak to an officer he personally knew. He confessed to the officer of killing his mother and Sally and, wanted the, and waited for the police to arrive and take him into custody, where he also confessed to the murders of the six students. When asked in a later interview why he turned himself in, Ed said, The original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a waste of time, emotionally. I couldn't ha handle it much longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing, at the point of near exhaustion, near collapse. I just said to hell with it, and called it all off. Ed was indicted on eight counts of first-degree murder on May 7, 1973. He was assigned the chief public defender of Santa Cruz County attorney Jim Jackson. Due to Egg's explicit and detailed confession, his counsel only option was to plead not guilty by reason of insanity to the charges. Ed twice tried to commit suicide in custody. His trial, his trial went ahead on October 23, 1973. Three court-appointed psychiatrists found Ed to be legally sane. One of the psychiatrists, Dr. Joel Fort, investigated his juvenile record and diagnosed that he was once psychotic. Dr. Ford also interviewed Ed, including under truth serum, and relayed to the court that Ed had engaged in cannibalism, alleging that he sliced flesh from the legs of his victims, then cooked and consumed these strips flesh into a casserole. Nevertheless, Dr. Ford determined that Ed was fully cognizant of in each case and say that Ed enjoyed the prospect of the infamy associated with being labeled as a murderer. Ed later recanted the confession of cannibalism. On November 1st, Ed took the stand. He testified that he killed the victims because he wanted them for himself like possessions, and attempted to convince the jury that he was insane based on the reasoning that his actions could only have been committed by someone within aberrant mind. He said two beings inhabited his body and that when the killer personality took over, it was kind of like blacking out, quote-unquote. On November 8th, the six-man, six-woman jury deliberated for five hours before declaring Ed sane and guilty on all counts. He asked for the death penalty, requesting death by torture. However, with a moratorium placed on the capital punishment by the Supreme Court of California, he instead received seven years to life for each count, with these terms to be served concurrently and was sentenced to the California Medical Facility. In the California Medical Facility, Ed was incarcerated in the same prison block as other notorious criminals, such as Herbert Mullen and Charles Manson. Ed showed particular disdain for Mullen, who committed his murders at the same time and in the same area as Ed. He described Mullen as, quote-unquote, just a cold-blooded killer, 
killing everybody he saw for no reason. Ed manipulated and physically intimidated Mullen, who, at five foot seven, was more than a foot shorter than Ed. Ed stated that, quote unquote, Mullen had a habit of singing and bothering people when somebody tried to watch TV. So I threw water on him, shut him up. Then, when he was a good boy, I'd give him peanuts. Herbie liked peanuts. That was effective because pretty soon he asked permission to sing. That's called behavior modification treatment. Ed remains among the general population in prison and is considered a model prisoner. He was in charge of scheduling other inmates' appointments with psychiatrists and was an, an accomplished craftsman of ceramic cups. He was also a prolific reader of audiobooks for the blind. A 1987 Los Angeles Times article stated that he was the coordinator of the prison's program and had personally spent over 5,000 hours narrating books with several hundred completed recordings to his name. He was retired from these positions in 2015 after he experienced a stroke and was declared medically disabled. He received his first rules violation report in 2018, 2016 for failing to provide a urine sample. While imprisoned, Ed has participated in a number of interviews, including a segment in the 1982 documentary, The Killing of America, as well as an appearance in the 1984 documentary, Murder, No Apparent Motive. His interviews have contributed to the understanding of the mind of serial killers. FBI profiler John Douglas described Ed as among the brightest prison inmates he interviewed and capable of rare insights for a violent criminal. Ed is forthcoming about the nature of his crimes and has stated that he participated in the interviews to save others like himself from killing. At the end of Murder No Apparent Motive interview, he said, quote unquote, there is somebody out there that is watching this and hasn't done that hasn't killed people, and wants to, and rages inside and struggles with that feeling, or is so sure that they have it under control, they need to talk to somebody about it. Trust somebody enough to sit down and talk about something that isn't a crime. Thinking that way isn't a crime. Doing it isn't just a crime. It's a horrible thing. It doesn't know when to quit, and it can't be stopped easily once it starts, unquote. He also conducted an interview with French writer Stephanie Brogron in 1991. Ed was first eligible for parole in 1979. He was denied parole that year, as well as, as the parole hearing in 1980, 81, and 82. He subsequently waived his right to a hearing in 1985. He was denied parole at his 1988 hearing where he said, quote unquote, society is not ready in any shape or form for me. I can't fault them for that. He was denied parole again in 1991 and in 1994. 
He then waived his right to a hearing in 1997 and in 2002. He attended the next hearing in 2007, where he was again denied parole. Prosecutor Adrian Simmons said, We don't care how much of a model prisoner he is because of the enormity of his crimes. Ed waived his right to a hearing again in 2012. He was denied parole in 2017 and is next eligible in 2024. So I would like to give a huge thanks to Shannon DeLynn for showing me Ed Kipper's case. I had previously not heard of this serial killer and after reading his story it was very hard to go through considering the terrible, terrible things he did to these young, innocent students. And it really, really hurts to know that the family had to deal with this and had to see this at trial and hear him kind of brag and just say how he was using using these females as possessions because they belonged to him. It was a very, very hard story to go through. Very misogynistic. Unfortunately, the dealings with his mother really really affected him and second floor as being a very hateful and dark person and he just couldn't get in the break in life so the only thing he knew I do was inflict pain so yeah listeners if you have any questions about anything be sure to go to our social medias we should talk about this Facebook group wstat underscore pod on Twitter and Instagram and be sure to send us an email at we should talk about this at gmail.com. That is our American email. So, once again, thank you for joining me on this short little little, little episode. Um, this is V. Um, Key and I should have an episode to you next week. But if not, then you'll hear from either one of us individually. Thanks so much for listening. This is V. And we should talk about this. Bye.